0: Since its legalization in Canada back in October 2018, a variety of cannabis products have made their way onto the market. While your mind may immediately jump to smoking marijuana when you first hear about cannabis, many other products focus on the use of Delta-9-Tetrahydrocannabinols, or THCs, and other cannabinoids, or CBDs. Known to help with a variety of ailments such as anxiety, insomnia, and chronic pain, THCs and CBDs have found new uses in a variety of products such as lotions and candles. But, have you ever wondered about how these different products in cannabis were first identified and produced? Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph, and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today is special guest and postdoc, Dr. Kelly Boddington. I'll be chatting about some of the work she's done in Dr. Akhtar's lab to identify and synthesize a new cannabis compound known as bi And we'll discuss what her work might mean for the expanding natural product market. Welcome, Kelly.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: We're very glad to have you. So, if you had to speak to some random person on the street or... Maybe you walked into some random undergrad class. How will you describe the work you do or I guess in general the work done in Dr. Edgar's lab?
1: OK, yeah, that's always a fun question to ask researchers is can they phrase it in a way uh, just anyone can understand. to anyone on the street? Um, in general, what we do in lab, I would use the term parts prospecting. So in Dr. Akhtar's lab, we're trying to figure out the enzymatic pathways that are involved in making a variety of different compounds, um, generally ones that show some promises therapeutics or for other applications. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can then produce these molecules enzymatically and study them further. Uh, we have a lot of different collaborations actually within the department with different professors who are interested in what our molecules can do in their different research models. It's um, mm-hmm. so really focused on learning how to make it, uh, generally in the way that a plant or an organism does.
0: So that kind of like nature knows best, so you want to do what nature does, or more of that you're trying to, <laughs> it's hard to make a compound from scratch and you don't know exactly what to do?
1: Yeah, sort of, sort of, nature knows best. Nature doesn't always know best, I'll be very honest. Um, so, some of the different reactions can be more easily done, like chemically um, or whatnot. But in certain cases, nature really does know best. So, um, oftentimes, when you have a molecule that you're trying to build, uh, if you're trying to put a group in a very specific spot on that molecule. So hydroxylate one specific spot as opposed to another. If you start doing things chemically, it just turns into a disaster because any group that can be hydroxylated gets hydroxylated. And then you're like, oh no, I didn't mean to do the whole thing at once. I only wanted a little bit here or there. And that's where enzymes um, generally become very useful is when you wanna do one specific thing and not necessarily other things. So nature has, these little tiny machines enzymes that can add your group um to one specific spot if you imagine like a little factory where they i've never been in a factory full disclosure um, i'm picturing where they <laughs> I don't think things many around have, so. on little conveyor belts right <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm i'm picturing cartoon style factory yeah. But like <laughs> yeah where you know you have a starting product and then you change it a little bit and then it goes down the conveyor belt and you change Mm -hmm. it again and then it keeps going down that conveyor belt and you add another thing that's pretty much exactly what we're doing and all of these enzymes the little workers at each spot along that conveyor belt we're like oh i'll tweak it here and i'll add this here and that's what we're putting together
0: (laughs) so considering the wide variety of compounds you can work with and i guess just in the field in general in terms of working with enzymes and creating products Mm -hmm. Why do you decide to research this particular topic in terms of extracting or creating bribentils from cannabis? And do you always like to do this kind of work? Like, have you been tailored since you first started getting to research to working with cannabis?
1: Not really. So I'll be very honest. There are very few scientific questions that are not interesting to me. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of researchers can relate to that. Um, And maybe something that I found a bit intimidating when you get into academia is they're like, awesome, science is great. Now pick one really niche thing and study it. You're like, but Mm -hmm. what about over there? What about that? Um, So no, I didn't expect this at all. I actually, I started my PhD in Dr. Stephen Grather's lab studying intrinsically disordered proteins. And that was awesome. And then when I moved on to my postdoc, what I was looking for um, really wasn't one particular subject. I'm not married to any particular niche. Uh, what drew me to Dr. Akhtar's lab was his connection to various industry partners mm. um, and the idea that something that I did in lab could directly benefit people and the public and actually go on to become something um and like not that the rest of our work can't do that but Dr Akhtar was linked very closely to this so it was a very immediate connection um and I also figured I might want to move out of academia and into industry so that would be a good way to kind of dip my toes into that field um, without leaving the nest of the university.
0: I do think that we don't really get a lot of I guess, exposure outside of academia, whether it be industry or government. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to be generous to the university here. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's it's definitely a smart smart play to try to branch out a little bit more and learn a little bit more about industry uh, ties, I guess, in terms of research. Mm -hmm. So with this moment in your past, I guess, that you're like, hmm, maybe this is something I really want to get my hands into and learn a little bit more about
1: maybe not necessarily in general with industry and maybe not uh, that drove me there in the beginning, but um, there was a moment actually, like as I was working on this project, so one of the really interesting things about bibencils uh, and their derivatives is their potential as anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of conversation going on, or at least there was before the pandemic happened and obscured all of that, <laughs> um, <laughs> about the opioid crisis and what can be done and what other options we can have on the market aside from NSAIDs and opioids and all that and by are are promising in that respect. And I hadn't really had a lot of personal experience with the opioid crisis until my little sister actually saved a man's life. So I'll take a second to brag. Uh, All right. (laughs) Yeah, it was one of those phone calls uh, Hmm. that you really remember, she called me out of the blue, which is super weird in today's day and age of texting. Uh, Hmm. And I could just immediately hear the tears in her voice she was fine she was safe it was just like the shock and adrenaline Mm -hmm. going on she'd been out hiking uh and at the trailhead there was like a a building where you start and uh someone had called for help and she and her friend had done cpr on a man in the bathroom who had uh overdosed from fentanyl uh or opioids laced with fentanyl Mm -hmm. Um, thankfully he survived the ambulance got there and took over and um, all that, but it's just one of those sort of weird That's so, moments where wow. yeah. That's crazy. If it was something out of
0: like a TV show or something, you'd never experience in real life.
1: Right. Also, my little sister's a badass. Um.
0: <laughs> yes clearly. <laughs> Shout out to her.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not something I expected to brush up against. Personally, it was just something you hear on the news a lot.
0: Focusing more in terms of the actual research you have been doing in the lab. Mm-hmm. You recently published a study titled By Benzal Synthesis in Cannabis Sativa Lineus. Can you really describe what bibenzols are and why they've been mostly overlooked until now? Sure,
1: Other than the Uh, pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No cop-out answers, okay. (laughs) So bibenzols they're uh, secondary metabolites that are found in cannabis. So essentially that means they're small molecules the plant produces in response to particular kinds of stress, uh, most likely in this specific case in response to fungal infection. Uh, But the interesting part, is their potential as uh, natural products or drugs, like we just talked about. But as to why they've been overlooked, um, I'd suggest probably a couple of different factors. First, they're relatively rare in the plant kingdom. So while all plants make some of the precursor molecules, uh, only a handful of plants, orchids, liverworts, cannabis, um, make bibenzols. So none of those plants are particularly well studied, certainly not compared to like Arabidopsis or crop plants um, mm. or such. And then to add on top of that, uh, cannabis has only recently become legal. So uh, right. proper research on its therapeutic potential has also only recently begun. That's not quite true. There was some research being done previously before it was um, made illegal. And then that all kind of just ran to a halt. Mm. Um, And then when it comes to cannabis research, CBD really just overshadows everything else by a landslide. Mm -hmm. Uh, The PR team for CBD is fantastic. (laughs) Uh, So we attribute a lot of benefits to CBD uh, that actually may or may not be appropriate. Um, So generally, when people are taking CBD, what they're taking is an extract or an oil, Um, Mm -hmm. but that extract will contain a whole bunch of other similar molecules that were pulled out in that extraction process from the plant Mm -hmm. um, that if we don't know about them, we don't think to test or quantify the oil. The really interesting thing is that studies that were done on pure CBD haven't been able to fully recapitulate the effect of the extract, which tells us that there are other molecules in the extract having a therapeutic effect. And this is my personal theory, Um, as to why people taking CBD oil can sometimes experience a really big difference between batches or between brands um, because there can be a difference in the rest of these molecules that uh, obviously they're making sure that there's a standardized amount of CBD, but Mm -hmm. if they're not measuring the rest of it, it could fluctuate wildly. So my theory.
0: (laughs) So considering like you just mentioned, there are a whole bunch of other types of not widely known compounds other than CBD and THC. So even beyond mybenzils, why have you decided to focus my mybenzils over any of the other kind of secondary metabolites?
1: Yeah, so um, as I just mentioned, actually, there was previous research done before cannabis became illegal, uh, and some of that early, early research has shown some promising candidates for bibenzyls and their derivatives, um, they've shown anti-cancer, anti-diabetic, uh, anti-inflammatory activities and in vitro assays, um, but the low concentrations that they're found within the plant may be taking that to the next phase of research really, really difficult, especially back then, which is where biosynthesis and understanding the enzymatic pathway it's not feasible to extract these compounds, but we know that they're interesting. There's like mm-hmm. promise shown there already. That's the perfect place for us to come in and discover how to make them enzymatically and then produce them in quantities to be able to take them on to further testing.
0: Right. So the curiosity, what, I don't sure if you know this, but what's like the relative <laughs> amount of say, by, by versus CBD within say, I don't know, a kilogram of fresh cannabis?
1: I do not know that number off the top of my head, but we're talking like significant orders of magnitude, like probably thousands, oh, guess, wow, okay. thousands of times less like <laughs> also partially because I mean now that people know about CBD and THC, they've been breeding these plants to make these molecules. Um, right. So that's even somewhat artificially elevated compared to what's normally there, uh, but mm. yeah, very very small.
0: <laughs> hmm. So speaking of your study, I would say that a major part of it focuses on looking at the molecular structure of compounds. Like we we're touching them before, kind of like playing with mm-hmm. Lego blocks and taking things off, reattaching things, creating new compounds. Mm-hmm. For our audience, the main focus of our talk today is on bibenzyls, which are characterized by two benzene rings, as sort of by the name biphenyl and I'm linked mm-hmm. with an ethyl bridge. For those of you who have taken Orgocam and can think back to that, recall that benzenes are a six carbon hexagon ring, which are characterized by the three double bonds that kind of interchange between pairs of carbons within the ring. Um, benzenes are then connected by that ethyl bridge, which is essentially a two carbon link uh, between a carbon from one benzene ring to the second benzene ring. So do you think you want to expand on them or clarify about that description?
1: I think you nailed it.
0: <laughs> oh, thank
1: you. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the only thing I can add is uh, maybe to put into context the alternative names. So, bibenzels or uh, beans. So, resveratrol is a really commonly known uh, molecule, and resveratrol is a still bean. Uh, this is the one that people are quoting all the time from red wine. Um, oh, as yes. Being okay. also had it aggressively marketed to me at the mall. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's a stilbene and that's mm. where there's the two benzene rings joined together with an ethyl bridge that has a double bond. Dihydro or bibenzyls are pretty much the exact same structure as resveratrol but just instead of that double bond linking the two groups it's a single bond. Mm. Uh, and then decorated the benzene rings however afterwards.
0: So there's something super healthy about having double benzene rings and compounds <laughs> that we've be looking for all the time?
1: Um, maybe.
0: <laughs> so you kind of touched on it earlier that your work is a, a little bit harder to describe to the generic audience because it requires a lot of background in terms of, you know, organic chemistry or even just basic chemical compounds in terms of mm-hmm. reactions. And I think we'd be here for hours, literally just <laughs> discussing every step <laughs> in your paper that's needed to create by benzene. I mean,
1: I've spent hours on that thing, so Yeah. <laughs>
0: An expert, even an expert in the field will take hours and hours to explain. <laughs> so I don't know if it's possible, but can you highlight some of the major steps or things you had to work out to get from its initial structure from hydrosinamic acids all the way to biphenols? in terms of how do we know what compounds we're looking at? How do we know how to transform these compounds?
1: I will give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> It's my favorite to have to try to describe chemical structures when we don't have a picture. But uh, yeah, of course. So to give you a high-level overview, we started with hydroxycinamic acids. So that's where we're starting. We didn't start from just like carbon atoms. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're starting already with one benzene ring, and that benzene ring already has some of the hydroxyl groups on it that we need, and then attached, sort of sticking off the end of that, is a three carbon chain. Mm-hmm. Um, why did we start here? Because hydroxycinamic acids are a common precursor in the phenylpropionate pathway, uh, and because some previous research in orchids had pointed towards this. Starting off with step one, we need to prime the hydroxycinamic acid. So this is done in a variety of other plants um, by something known as a 4 ligase. And this was really more of a, like a phylogenetic puzzle that we were looking at. Um, we know it's gonna be done by 4-CL, but which 4-CL is going to do it? Some of my colleagues did some great bioinformatics work and we found that there are three clades of, 4-CL, 4-cumary ligase, that's the short form that I'm using, uh, Mm -hmm. enzymes, class 1, 2, and 3. When we look at cannabis, CS4-CL4, which was one of the 4-CL enzymes that we had, was the only um, cannabis 4-CL that grouped into this clade. Then after that, so we've primed it, we've put the Mm -hmm. CoA, stuck it onto the end of the hydroxycinamic acid so that the downstream enzymes can recognize it. Uh, and this enzyme actually does two of the jobs. So it's going to take that uh, molecule that we got from our 4-CL enzyme, and it's going to elongate the chain and then mm-hmm. cyclize the end of it. We had two candidates in cannabis, but only one was functional with the substrates that we were looking at. So that was a pretty clear uh, winner. And- Is it rare that
0: it ends up being that easy?
1: <laughs> so... <laughs> This makes it sound easier than it it is. When you describe
0: it sounds very easy, but I imagine it was a lot of work.
1: (laughs) And then we did some experiments and it worked. Um, (laughs) It was a little bit messier than that. Hmm. Uh, What was really the puzzle for us, though, was at what point in time does that double bond get reduced? And this was where the substrate preference of the bibenzyl synthase actually came into play because that was very definitive. It refused... To use anything that had not already had the double bond gotten rid of it mm. um and for that one we found that there was actually a change in the shape of the substrate binding pocket that so if you think about a single versus the double bond a double bond makes the molecule more rigid right mm. uh, and then a single bond will allow it to be more flexible so there basically been a, a narrowing of the substrate binding pocket such that uh, the substrate had to squeeze its way into the enzyme, and the more rigid double bond just couldn't do it, uh, hmm. And whereas the single bond, which was more flexible, could, you know, wiggle its way in there. So what do you think of a compound?
0: They look pretty rigid, but obviously <laughs> they're a lot more flexible than they look like. They're not just like solid structures yeah. you think of, those like plastic model kits.
1: <laughs> I loved those that was so much fun <laughs> maybe I'm just a really visual learner I had a blast with those things
0: I strongly recommend all our listeners to please check out the paper and play this play this audio at the same time as you're as you're looking at the diagram yeah there's a make <laughs> there's sense. a
1: pretty figure <laughs> that I spent a long time on um, and it has the entire pathway visually laid out for mm-hmm. you there. That would be Figure Four if you're following along at home.
0: So, as you mentioned, your study was focused on looking at and identifying specific compounds needed, or I guess specific enzymes needed to create benzyls, such as say CSTBR2. So, what do you think of some of the major benefits provided to your field by having identified some of the possible pathways and possible enzymes involved in creating benzyls? Is it difficult to synthesize these enzymes and maintain them for long periods of time?
1: Yeah, so the biggest benefit uh, is definitely the potential to use biosynthesis to make enough of these enzymes to study them in an actual, you know, proper clinical trial in vitro assays, preclinical clinical clinical trials. Um, Because of how sparse they are in nature, um, taking that to the level of having enough to give, you know, all your test subjects in those different trials is just um, sometimes impossible. Mm. Uh, But knowing what we know now about the pathway, if we can put that towards Um, biosynthesis and actually generate larger quantities of them, then we can really start to see what we can do with them. So are they difficult to synthesize? Comparatively to some of the other enzymes that I've worked with, not really. Uh, They're soluble enzymes. They're not membrane bound or anything, which is a massive pain if they were, but (laughs) they're not. So that's good.
0: Is your hope that having identified this pathway and the necessary steps to get to that that perhaps you might see some companies stocking some of these compounds, you don't know, like from scratch anymore?
1: Um, yeah, not only hope, but um, to let the cat out of the bag, I guess. I'm excited because I've actually moved on to join. Uh, company Knurda, as a research associate, and that's the exact Ooh, kind of thing that we're working on. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so it's really exciting for me to be able to take the research that I was doing previously. We're not uh, we're not using bibenzels immediately. We're using some of the other compounds uh, mm. also from cannabis that have been previously identified. Although bibenzels are on the slate. But it's really cool to be able to take the work that I've done at an academic level and at an academic scale um, and scale that up and actually make it, you know, feasible, uh, Mm. make a platform to create these things and see that taken further.
0: Would you say that's your favorite part in your research project that you can feel or you can see a final project in in the horizon? Like, ah, I'm aiming for that goal. And that's my, that's what I'm looking for.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it it can be hard um, in academia sometimes when you're working to you know keep your motivation up and uh, it's really just my PhD is a testament to the amount of failure that I went through in my projects and you know you keep moving eventually to find the right answer but mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of failure that's what science is it's, oh that wasn't it that wasn't it that didn't work mm-hmm. it didn't work um, and that could be kind of tough to push through but knowing that it's actually going to become something like you're going to make something that's really cool
0: because like science is just a, just an exercise in failure <laughs> and getting back it up again.
1: <laughs> I mean, I love it, but it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like to ask this to all the people I interview. But mm-hmm. if you could go back in time and change one thing about your study, what would it be and why?
1: That's a really difficult question. I think partially because I spent so long revising this paper uh, and bashing my head against it, <laughs> um, but. <laughs> it's pretty much in the shape that I was happy with, but, Mm. um, there's always more. So Mm. the, um, I guess that's one of the hardest things about writing a paper is that there's not an end to science and you know this mm. as a scientist like I, I don't know if anyone really gets to a point where they're like all right that's all my questions see you later <laughs> there's <laughs> always like teach
0: you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's always like okay like that's cool but knowing that now I have a question about this mm. um, and there's always different sort of directions that you could go. Um, one of the directions that we didn't really pursue partially because we weren't set up for it was the transcriptomic side of things. The data that we got was from a public database that we analyzed for our purposes. Um, if we had done it ourselves though, if we if we had been set up for that, I think it would have been interesting to see the different uh, levels of expression under different stress conditions. I think sort of that um, other side of how it works for the plant and, and when the plant produces these things would have been interesting as well um, but our priority was kind of on the people side i guess the selfish side of the science
0: <laughs> unfortunately that's where all the funding goes is what, what's better for people they don't really care so much about it. <laughs> what what are the plants doing yeah so do you kind of see a developing market for i guess more bibenzils and related compounds in the future in say the next 10 20 years
1: for sure yeah Um, I think we're getting to the point where we we have more technology in order to be able to make these compounds that previously we just didn't have access um, to, again, because of the quantities. Uh, But there's a whole treasure trove of things that exist in nature that we can start to look into, not just in cannabis, but in other plants as well. Um, A lot of potential uh, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer all kinds of things and I, I think it's going to be a huge
0: market. So that's enough questions for me, we're going to take some or rather you're going to take some that I've taken from our social media and from our miscellaneous listeners. Our first question is with the legalization of marijuana, has there been an increase in jobs uh, working with marijuana that require a lot of research experience or research degrees? What do you think the field in the job market will be like in the next five to ten years?
1: Um. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Short answer yes. <laughs> Short answer yes. <laughs> There's definitely a lot more room for um, a bunch of different scientific positions within this field. There's, I guess, if we're looking at what I think the market will be in the next five to ten years, uh, there was a really big boom around CBD and THC products when cannabis was first legalized. Because again, that's that's what everyone thinks of, that's whatever knows about, but that's also sort of a a very saturated market of everyone's making them. Um, right. I do think that the future of this market is going to look more um, like what we're doing at Knurda with sort of pulling apart some of these other interesting, unstudied, novel potential pharmaceutical compounds mm-hmm. from the plant and really just investigating more of what it has to offer beyond the surface level.
0: And our final question from the audience is. What are some of the most common misconceptions you hear about different cannabis compounds? Has there been a noticeable shift in the past few years?
1: Most common misconceptions and a noticeable shift. Uh, I guess as far as misconceptions, and I I don't know if I would call it fully a misconception, but like I touched on before, um, everything good gets attributed to CBD. Um, we're like, okay, THC gets you high. CBD is the good one, um, and I <laughs> and think that, that's, and, and then we're done. We wipe our hands. We're good. Go home. But like I said before, there's just a lot, a lot more molecules that uh, likely are having an effect. And although CBD um, certainly does have an effect, as to whether it has every single one of these effects that are attributed to it or whether it's responsible for the entirety of the effects that are seen. That's what I would question. And while as much as I love, you know, investigating the research potential of these molecules as a scientist, I do want to make sure that when we're marketing these, that we're backing it up with good information, that we're communicating that good science that was done to uh, consumers and that consumers feel equipped and empowered to, I guess, uh, ask those questions about what research was done without feeling kind of attacked or bullied for it. I think sometimes when science is presented in the media it's very monolithic like someone in a lab coat who's just going to tell you what science thinks and it's a lot more nuanced than that and I'd encourage people to ask questions and, and feel like they're allowed to do that.
0: So do you have any final comments you want to make about your work or about anything else we've chatted about today if I listen, only to learn or take away one thing from this whole 30 minute long chat. What do you hope it is?
1: Um, I hope they remember a very specific enzyme. No, I'm just kidding. Uh,
0: <laughs> Memorize I, the pathway. <laughs> <laughs> there will
1: be a test. I, I think just the idea of um, keeping an eye out on what's going to come out of not just the cannabis industry, the biotech industry of what we can do now with um, the technology that we have I think there's going to be a lot of interesting molecules and pharmaceuticals uh, that will start to be available Um, and I think keep an eye out for that and it's just sort of cool to understand how they're made
0: and that's cool
1: (laughs) (laughs) science is cool kids
0: science is cool everybody so, uh, I appreciate brings bringing us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Dr. Kelly Bonington, for joining us today. GriffinCast is brought to you by your host, me, Michael Lim, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about different science topics, please check out the Scribe Research Highlights. That's Scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights, on the University of Guelph website at uoguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at UofGCBS. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Utbeat, will be details in the show notes. And you may also want to check out a new podcast coming out of the Ontario Veterinary College called Vet Sessions. On their podcast, you can learn more about what goes on in vet clinics and what's involved in primary care. That's V-E-T space S-E-S-S-I-O-N-S. Until next time, please stay curious.